Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And if you have a Bible nearby, please take it out or an electronic device so that you can follow along. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. I'll be reading from Acts 19, verses 11 to 20. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Acts 19, beginning at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva, were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them all, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Come on up, Felipe. Well, it's certainly, be, it's certainly good to be here uh, with you again. We've visited several times, I don't know, the past couple of months, but it's a joy to be here and, and share the word of the Lord with you. And we'll start by praying. How, that, how does that sound? Good? Yeah, I was going to pray anyway, so. Thank you, dear Father, for the privilege we have of gathering together and in your presence, Father. We want to wanna pray, we want to ask you to, to show us, Jesus, the power of the gospel, the transforming power of your word in our lives and in our city, Father. We pray that you'll encourage us and get excited about the power of God transforming us and our city as well, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What comes to mind when you think about revival? Some may think of a charismatic neo-Pentecostal megachurch promoting their newest sermon series. Others of the older type might imagine a tent meeting with the most famous evangelist uh, preaching throughout the week. 
Some might get excited about the idea, but others might get scared or uncomfortable. Whatever the case, we must acknowledge that in the book of Acts, we have several examples of quote-unquote revival. Also, world history has witnessed several revivals, not least here in the U.S., the great first awakening through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. A former professor of mine, John Woodbridge, notes that Edwards spurred on the revival with one of his most famous sermons saying, there's the difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Thus, showing the difference between merely having knowledge about God and experiencing his love and the truth of his word. The result of a genuine revival, according to Edwards himself, is that everyone seemed more focused on eternity. Many new converts professed faith in Christ. The town exhibited better morals and church members showed higher regard for scriptures. Woodbridge then continues and says that during, the, during a visit to Enfield in 1741, Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Due to screaming and other emotional displays from the congregation, Edwards could not even finish his sermon with an appeal to God's grace. Others say that people were holding fast to their pews for fear to fall into hell because of their guilt and sin. But then again, what is a genuine revival? What or how much, if anything, of the book of Acts can we expect to happen today in 21st century Chicago? Now, don't get me wrong, I'll be the first one to say that there are lots of things in the book of Acts that are unique and unrepeatable. But there are patterns, there are repetitions by which Luke highlights things for us even today. And in this passage, I believe we see genuine revival Aspects of which Luke wants us to or encourage us to expect, pray for, and desire. A genuine revival, at least in this passage, is the genuine power of God that produces genuine citywide transformation. Again, a genuine revival is the genuine power of God producing genuine citywide transformation. First, note God's power displayed and manifested through Paul, verses 11 and 12, if you're following with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons or, or aprons that had been that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, let's not get sidetracked with handkerchiefs and aprons just yet. Luke highlights clearly that God is performing these miracles. Indeed, these are extraordinary miracles made by God through Paul's hands. Literally, God is doing no ordinary miracles. I love how, how Luke categorizes them. You see, there, there are miracles, and then there are miracles, right? But there's a reason for which Luke emphasizes God's extraordinary power through Paul. Luke wants, us, wants to demonstrate that Paul's teaching is, in fact, God-approved. As you may recall from last week's passage, Paul had been persuading and teaching the disciples in Ephesus daily for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word. So just as with Jesus, God is attesting Paul's teaching through these powerful acts. Jesus' own preaching was attested by God and his power through miracles. Looking his, Luke, in his gospel, tells us how Jesus was, was teaching them and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Immediately, Luke's right about Jesus rebuking an unclean spirit. And they were all amazed again and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus' word, Jesus' teaching, was attested by miracles. And so is Paul's teaching. But Felipe, what's with the handkerchiefs? You might remember the, the, the woman who had a, a discharge of blood for 12 years. Do you remember how she was healed? She said, if I touch even his garment, Jesus' garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So now, through handkerchiefs and aprons, God is doing with Paul what Jesus did with his garments. And by comparing Paul with Jesus, Luke wants us to know that this is the genuine power of God acting through the teaching and hands of Paul. It's not about handkerchiefs. It's about God's genuine power attesting Paul's ministry in Ephesus. In fact, in this COVID age, I would not recommend receiving handkerchiefs from anyone no matter how powerful they may seem to be. But Luke does not stop there. He, he contrasts God's genuine power with the ungenuine power of some itinerant exorcists who tried to cast out evil spirits. Did you see that? Verses 13 to 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook or attempted to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus of whom Paul, Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, verse 16, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Picture the scene. A bit of tragic comedy. They intended to invoke Jesus' power and ended up running naked and wounded. In fact, this one man overpowered seven men. Rather than manifesting the power, the genuine power of the Lord over him, the evil spirit mastered, lorded over them. Magic and, and spells were, were very popular in Ephesus at that time. This is also clear by the, the number and value of books they burned, as we'll see later in this passage. A commentator notes that for the Ephesians, the incantation of, of a formula that includes a name was regarded as having power to drive out evil spirits from people. These sons of Siva saw how Paul, in the, name or, in the name of Jesus, was casting out demons and thought, well, that's a powerful spell. We might try that one next time. But little did they know. Something, something similar happened before in Acts 8, remember? There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Luke then writes that Simon saw the spirit, that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, and he offered money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And sadly, the sons of Siva are not just from Ephesus. They were actually Jewish exorcists using pagan magic. One wishes they, they knew better that Siva, a high priest of the Lord, would have teach them better. They thought they could merely use Jesus' name without knowing him. They thought they could merely lord over Jesus' power, but they were the ones overpowered. So listen, church. God's genuine power is not a matter of magic or spells. God's power is not something that can be mimicked or bought. We cannot control or manipulate God's power. It's the contrary. Jesus' name must be honored, worshipped. We might not resort to magic or spells today, 
But we do disregard God's power in many ways. Some may believe that because they come to church, place their offerings, participate in intentional Christian communities, then God will bless them, will make them prosper as, as if they could bend God's hand. That if they repeat prayers or simply declare what they want in the name of Jesus, then God will magically answer. But God's power cannot be manipulated. Jesus' name must not be taken in vain. Prayer is not a spell by which we obtain what we want. No. Prayer is the way we make evident our complete dependence on God's power. We don't need Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons, but God is still powerfully acting in our lives and our church today. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're not using magical words. Rather, we pray with Jesus as our only mediator. We enjoy confidently the genuine power of God in our lives despite our weaknesses. We pray, indeed, for the sick and the needy precisely because we are completely dependent on God's genuine power. And we are convinced that nothing else will do unless he acts upon it. This genuine power of God leads to and produces citywide transformation. Luke portrays this trans transformation in terms of awe or, or fear and genuine conversion. Luke, look first at, at the fear that fell upon all, verse 17. And this, this, this failed exorcism, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Again, the name of the Lord was extolled, was magnified. Even though the sons of Siva misused his name, Jesus was still worshipped and honored. I cannot but think of the cross, the one place in which they wanted to put to shame Jesus, but he was exalted anyway. The good news is that despite taking his name in vain, we are not overpowered because Jesus overcomes evil. God brings victory over darkness and powerfully overcomes sin. Now that is good news. That is the gospel. We should then fear the name of the Lord. Magnify Jesus in our everyday lives. And the city of Ephesus were doing so. Apart from fear and worship, the genuine power of God leads to and produces genuine conversions. Did you see that? Verses 18 and 19. Also, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them 
and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Fear and worship, along with confession and repentance, now that is genuine transformation. They did not just confess their practices, but went as far as burning what was fueling those practices. I have no idea how much 50 pieces of silver is. I can barely convert Chilean pesos to U.S. dollars. But it sure sounds a lot. In any case, this transformation is from the inside out. Inward, heartful awe of God and confession is evidenced by outward actions and behaviors. Not the other way around. During the Reformation in Geneva, before the arrival of John Calvin, many took over the city and started destroying and burning images and statues, thus desecrating Catholic properties. Protestant mobs with hammers and axes attacked a convent, destroying uh, books and statues, but... William Farrell, the Reformationist leader, quickly discovered that it was one thing to demolish the existing religious order and quite another to construct a new one in its place. Calvin later recalled, When I first arrived, there was almost nothing. They were good at seeking out idols and burning them, but there was no Reformation. External actions do not produce internal change. It was not until faithful, systematic, expository preaching, pastoral training, and the establishment of new churches that the Reformation and a genuine revival came to Geneva. Another former professor of mine, Scott Manich, wrote, For Calvin... The essential difference between true and false worship was that whereas spiritual worship is prompted by the Holy Spirit, engages the inner inner life of faith, is subject to the divine word, and leads to God's glory, false worship springs from the flesh, is concerned with external righteousness, violates God's commands, and is thoroughly idolatrous. The destruction of idols does not produce reformation or revival, but genuine revival produces genuine inward transformation that is evidenced in outward morals and behavior. Note also the the, the implicit contrast between the valuable books of magic and Paul's teaching. They are now listening and obeying God's word rather than magic books. Note how genuine transformation in turn produces genuine gospel or word growth. Verse 20. So, in this way, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is where Luke is taking us. 
Luke is once again drawing attention to the growth of God's word. Despite apparent fraudulent and demonic activity, God's word continues to increase. A few times throughout Acts, we hear this same refrain, Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continues to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And again, Acts 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And lastly here, the same chord is played. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As a commentator notes, the narrator is not simply glorifying Paul. It is finally the power of the word of the Lord or the name of the Lord that stands behind these events. This is genuine revival. The genuine power of God and his word producing genuine inward transformation, evidenced in outward actions and making the word grow in the city. J.I. Packer refers to this as a recurring feature of revival. I quote, As God uses his word to quicken consciences, the perversive perversiveness, ugliness, uncleanness, and guilt of sin are seen and felt with new clarity. And the depth of each person's sinfulness is realized as never before. Believers are deeply humbled. Unbelievers are made to feel that living as they do with sin and without God is intolerable. And the forgiveness of sins becomes the most precious truth in the creed. And note, finally, that this transformation is not only in isolated individuals. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Verse 17. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 20. This was a citywide transformation. Back to the first awakening. In 1739, George Whitfield visited Philadelphia and preached outdoors to thousands of peoples. And even Benjamin Franklin couldn't deny the evidence of revival that accompanied Whitfield's visit. He says, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion... It seemed as if they all it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. A word of warning or, or two. First, genuine revival takes time. Sure, the fear of God fell upon them all after the event of the unclean spirit and the sons of Siva, but this was not before years 
of daily Bible instruction in the city. And second, as it will become clear next week, genuine transformation comes with opposition. So don't be surprised when people stand against the preaching of the gospel and reject this call to honor the name of Jesus. We must persevere. We must continue praying for God to act powerfully in our lives. Let us pray for God to act uh, powerfully also in our church. Pray that this genuine power of God um, will become evident in our lives through confession and repentance. Imagine your, your life continually growing in your trust on God's power, learning from God's word, knowing Jesus, extolling his name, and in turn being continually transformed from the inside out, confessing and repenting from your sin, actually changing those habits and sinful patterns motivated by the fear of the Lord. How would, you, how would your relationship to God, to Jesus, change? How would your relationship to your family and friends change by this inward transformation? Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. You've heard the name, but you have not known his power in your life yet. You know that honey is sweet, but have not yet experienced or have a sense of its sweetness in the forgiveness of sins. I pray that God's word will convict you as it did the citizens of Ephesus, that you will come to see the power of Jesus and confess your sins and stop fueling them. And imagine if as a church, if as many of us as is possible in God's will uh, are transformed and then are spread out throughout the city, proclaiming publicly the victory of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, evidencing our trust in God. How would the city of Chicago be influenced and transformed? How would the word of God increase in our neighborhoods? If we want to see our cities transformed by the power of the gospel, we should expect, desire, and pray for the genuine power of God and his word to produce genuine citywide transformation, starting with us. Let us pray. Yes, Father, open our eyes to see that there is power in your name. Not a power we can control or manipulate, but a power we can depend on in prayer, personally and communally. Put, put that desire in our hearts, Father, to see our lives truly transformed, inwardly, not just in outward actions, but fearing your name, wanting, wanting to, to, 
to please you. Again, individually and as a church. And that as your power acts in us and as a church, that this city will be transformed. That others may come to see the genuine power of God through Jesus in the gospel, transforming us that they might come and desire and, and irresistibly come to your grace and hold on to it for the forgiveness of their sins as well. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.